You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Gracious and Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning for church, um, for your word, uh, prayed and read and preached and heard. Um, now, Lord, I pray for the teacher. You would hide him behind your your cross. Let it come. Uh, let your word go forth and not return to you void. And um, speak, Lord, uh, uh, speak in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, welcome. Like I mentioned last week, a very brief. Um, almost summer interlude, just some, some weeks here in the summer schedule to, uh, to uh, not fill, so to speak, but um, there was some slots there. I thought, oh, I'm going to teach again, and, and, and so picked up some uh, Genesis. I didn't even know what I was going to do when I scheduled myself months ago to snap socks in Genesis. I thought, that's, that's ambiguous enough to be able to pull some <laughs> things in. True to form it was, and here we are, um, but some great passages. Last week we looked at Cain and Abel in particular, also tying that to Genesis 1-2, Genesis 1, verses 1-2 and 3, that famously in the beginning was the Word, um, or in the beginning uh, God created, um, and looking specifically at that word creation, we're going to be an echo of that again, um, that that's a unique word, that when God creates, (laughs) God is so God, he has his own words, you know, and that word is only used in reference to God. When I create something, um, I don't create in the way that that word says God creates. Only God does that, and he does it in his really unique way by speech, um, uh, and then everything else you make. And then we looked at the story of Adam and Eve, looked at the word pathos or pathos, however you want to describe it, which has this latent sense of suffering and, and passivity. You can hear that in there. It's where we get the word passion or passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he suffered the work of God on him, but it was also suffering as in physical pain, um, so that passive tense, but also the painful sense of things, where as God created the heavens and the earth and he separated darkness um, and brought in light where darkness, death and darkness is sort of the default mode without this word, this creative word of God. All of life is death and darkness. We'll see that again. Um, that God in his sheer grace speaks and acts and pulls back the dark as it were um, and lets light in and then speaks again and then there's the separation of the stars from the earth and now there's earth and then he makes again, and there's there's plants, and there's water, and there's fish, and there's animals, and every creeping thing, and all those different things. And then there's the serpent who was made, created by God, um, who was the most wily or crafty of all the things that God had made. Um, and then something very unique happens, that after Adam and Eve um, ate the fruit, they were naked and ashamed, and then God made for them skins. He didn't create for them skins. He didn't sort of just speak clothing and then sort of like there's clothes something like, whoa, look, you know, I'm, check it out. You know, that wasn't Adam and Eve. Uh, he made for them in the same way that I would make um, uh, something in a wood shop or that I would make, you know, a, uh, a dress if I knew how to make anything. 
I don't know how to make any. I realize that I'm doing this. Like, you don't know how to make anything. You don't make anything. Um, but why is that important? Um, this is the part where I cry because I think it's some of those just most sad parts of the scripture. Genesis 3:21. And the Lord God made for them clothing out of skins, which means the Lord comes down into His creation, which was good. It was good. It was good. It was evening. It was morning. It was good. And it was very good when He made Adam and Eve. And then he made for them skins, which means that he had to take the life that he had made, the animals, and he killed them. And he shed blood. And blood is obviously huge. Where there's blood, there is life. There will be blood. That's the promise. Um, And he made for them skins by taking uh, a life instead of the life of Eve and of Adam. He took the life of an animal sacrifice. And so we went into Cain and Abel and looked at all that. And all that is very still much a part of the narrative that goes on here as we look at the story of um, Abram and Abraham, who became Abraham and Sarai, his wife, who became Sarah, um, who had Isaac, um, which means laughter, and had him in their old age. Um, uh, and so Isaac, as it were, comes out of death, the death, the dead womb of Sarah. Um, there's going to be two places where Isaac, as it were, comes out of death. Um, this great story in Genesis 22, with what a lot of people. I want to say it's one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible, and it, and it is. It's not easy, um, uh, but difficult in what way? Well, in some ways, it's just like incredible. Incred- that can't mean what it means. Um, and as a uh, word of disclaimer, I listened several times to a, a, a sermon this week. Um, one of my favorite sermons ever. I hope I'm not the only person in the room who's, who can say that. You know, One of my favorite sermons that I listen to Every, every so often, uh, by Robert Smith, the professor of preaching over at Beeson, and his sermon on, um, on this passage. And so a lot of credit is due to him. I'm not going to say every time, and Dr. Smith said that, you know, just a blanket statement. Um, he's certainly been in my, my, uh, my thoughts and in my heart this week. Um, where he would say, um, sometimes one of the greatest obstacles to... Reading and hearing and understanding are being marked and having the word inwardly digested. One of the biggest obstacles to knowledge of the Bible is knowledge of the Bible. And so when you try to then come at Genesis 22, the story of, of the sacrifice, quote unquote, the near sacrifice of Abraham, of Isaac by Abraham, the testing of Abraham, um, uh, this, which we'll read in just a minute and then look at some art, um, it's difficult because we know the rest of the Bible and you're like, there's no way that God would do this. And it's there in, in a whole chapter, or at least two-thirds of one. And it's, it's, it's difficult. It's a difficult story to swallow. It's a difficult story to approach. But we're going to dive right in. Um, and then look next week at, uh, at the, the story of Jacob, the son of Isaac. Um, uh, the boy Isaac, who we'll meet today, who grows up and, and becomes a man, and has Jacob and Esau. We'll look at his crossing the, the Jabbok River and wrestling God. Um, that's next week, two weeks. Sorry. So, with all that, like I said, I didn't know how I was going to start, so we started. Um, let's uh, let's read. Um, there's some Bibles over there if you want to grab one or ask um, the uh, the good Mr. Gaston to pass you one, um, or if you want to turn one on uh, on your phone. Um, We'll look briefly at Genesis 12. Gosh, i got to move quickly. Um, don't open Genesis 12 because it's not worth it. Take your time and, 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 and open to Genesis 22, and I'll read Genesis 12 to you. 
this is uh, out of nowhere because Genesis 1 through 11, there's a uh, just the sense of of uh, of the ordering of the beginning of all things. The Tower of Babel happens, and it goes through this long list of descendants, and you get you know so and so lived for 32 years, and here's the generations of Terah, etc. And then Genesis 12 just like just thud, like this big just boulder in the lake and all of a sudden it's just kaboosh and it just starts making these waves because suddenly it says and now the Lord said and if you're reading along you haven't heard anything like that since the beginning uh, and a little bit in the flood Um, but then suddenly this kaboosh and now the Lord said to Abram go from your country and your kindred and your father's house King James is great get thee out um Get thee away. Get thee out from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house. Leave your land, your people, your family, and go. And so there's very much the get thee out. Go, and then go to. uh, To the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. So this is the beginning of the promise. And all this happens when Abraham is 75 years old. Um, And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth you shall be blessed. So here's God speaking and he's speaking go. He's speaking go to a particular person. He's speaking go, Abram, go, the pre-covenantal name. Go to a place that I will provide. And there's the beginning of this... Um, this uh, this sense where there's this triple wordplay going on in Genesis 12 and in the parallel structure of Genesis 22. Go where? Go to the place that I will provide, that I will show, and that you will see. And you could use all those phrases in English and they would all mean the same thing. The provision of the Lord is the same thing as being shown. Our seeing is the same thing of being provided. For the Lord speaks and it is. And there's that whole play that goes up and down. This land that I will provide will be the land that you see. The land that I show you will be the land that I provide to you. The land that I show you, you will see. And then all this has to do with something like a blessing. Lots to say about blessing. It's an interesting word. I've not gotten over it. Um, It's got two things to say about blessing. because Suddenly it's all over the place. And I will bless you and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And then all the families of the earth will be blessed. Two things to say about it. One, it's obviously and always relational. Blessing doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's no such thing as, as, and I was blessed all by myself. There is no such thing as being blessed all by myself. There is somebody else. There's always a relationship. There has to be this movement. But it's not always God down. Sometimes it's us up or side to side. And so it's always a relationship that is then second, I think, clarified. Blessing always sort of knocks things out and you see things as it actually is. This idea of, of here is what I'm going to show you and I will provide you and you will see and you could even say and you will hear and that's clear. And suddenly all the dross is cleared away and all the noise and everything else and bless, blessing, relationship, and clarity, the epiphany, the aha, I see now, I can see it. And that's all going to be this strong echo in Genesis 22. So let's read this. Um, have all that in mind, this sense of epiphany, this aha. And then suddenly a ram appeared 
his, his, thorn, his horns caught in a thicket. The Lord provided, I see, he demonstrated, I hear. Um, all that has this sense of blessing, of provision, of sight, of hearing, of our suffering, the work of God. So the sacrifice of Isaac. Let's look at this. I'm going to compare a couple of pieces. Um, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. After these things, God tested Abraham. Um, Abram became Abraham, if I remember my Bible right, in chapter 18, I think it was, um, when uh, he was 99. And now finally, although he said in 12, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. How? I'm childless. I'm an old man already. And Sarah's almost as old as I am. Her womb is dead. You know, Immaculate Conception 1. Uh, I'm going to do it. 20, about 15 years later, he comes again and, uh, and renews the covenant in, in Genesis 15. And this time he says, the sand on the seashore, nothing. Stars in the sky, kind of like that. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. When? Gotta wait, gotta wait. Not yet, you're still Abram. And then finally it comes over. Somebody's got their Bible open. I think it's 18, I can't remember. Uh, where Abraham is, uh, the promise is renewed and now a name is given. You're gonna have a son. It's gonna be next year. You're 99, but when you're 100, when Sarah is 90, her womb is gonna be opened. Uh, and to mark this, you're now gonna be, have a, a physical mark. Circumcision is entered in. It's the mark of the sign of the promise. But the son of promise, um, your name is no longer Abram, but Abraham. Uh, and she's not Sarai, but Sarah. And the son of promise is going to come. And what did he do? He laughed. <laughs> of course he laughed. And Sarah laughs later and says, all right, fair enough. His name is going to be Laughter. Isaac, which means laughter. Um, and now we're here. Now, that was just last chapter. That's what it was. It was in 21. Um, no, Isaac is born in 21. So the son is the son of promise is just born. And now he's a boy. Uh uh, there's a specific word in here that says he's not a, not a four-year-old. He's probably about 12 or 13. He's just about to move into manhood, in other words, um, a youth. Uh, and God speaks these words. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains in which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. And then Abraham said to these young men, the two kind of servants, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship. Come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the knife, the fire, and the knife. And so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father, he said, Here I am, son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself, uh, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they both went of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order to bind, uh, and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up, offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So much to say. Um, let's climb in, kind of go into the heart a little bit, at least hopefully. Um, quickly, some art. This is William Blake again. Um, I didn't know this was going to be, but I love art. Um, let me start hanging out in museums a little bit more. But William Blake, I don't really like this one. I'm going to look at another one. This is also William Blake. I like this one. This one. Um, uh, you can see the ram. This is obviously a huge Abraham, almost a godlike Abraham, almost a Zeus-like Abraham. Um, uh, yet he's not totally in control. He's not God because he's looking up. He's looking for some sort of inspiration. He's looking for something to come in to him from outside, and yet he's still very much unmoved. He's there with his arms stretched with the very, very, very small... Um, uh, son Isaac pointing to the ram. Is this the one? Is this the one? Just this sense of really sort of saying this is not a lot of pathos for me. This isn't dripping with that sense of waiting or of sadness, which this one conveys, I think, in spades. Probably my favorite one of all the ones that I'm going to show. They're going to look and contrast a Rembrandt with a Caravaggio. But here, with the doom and all, um, this echo from Genesis 1 that goes all the way then to... Uh, not the Mount of Moriah, but the Mount of Golgotha, because there's a strong parallel here, obviously, in our Christian reading, where from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, in other words, from noon until three o'clock, the last three hours when Jesus was on the cross, what is one of the things that happened? But it became dark. Darkness descended on the Mount of Golgotha. In other words, the God who spoke, let there be light, and he separated the dark from the light for the moment when creation was being unmade and all things were being remade in that pregnant moment of now, which is also here in Genesis 22, now on the cross where God is most present, where he seems most absent, where everything is being unmade so it'll be remade, where there's real recreation in the moment of the cross where darkness enveloped the deep and the spirit was hovering over the waters. We hear that echo from Genesis 1 all the way to the cross and now William Blake puts it here in this really, I think, compelling picture of the little boy, uh, Isaac. Laughter, not laughing, but just coming before and the supplication of being bound and naked and totally open with the elongated arm, the powerful arm, and my arm is not too short to save, with the long arm of Abraham saying, really? This is my son, my only son, the son of promise. How will this happen with the knife in his hand and the fire right by it? And he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. So lots to be said, but not going to be said, but I just want to kind of pull our heart into a little bit. Love this picture by William Blake. Um, we don't look at this. That's a Caravaggio's, that's the one I want. Um, 
So we'll compare and contrast very briefly. No, we're not. This is going to take the rest of the time. Um, um, this is a Rembrandt. We're going to look at this one and compare it to this picture by Caravaggio. Um, uh, so what am I doing here? Um, and I'm borrowing heavily on some other things that I've read about previously. But Rembrandt. Um, this is sacrifice glorified, we might say. Where is the ram? There is no ram. The story we heard about a ram. But suddenly, when the angel comes and says, Don't lay your hands on the boy. Spare your son, your only son. And I will provide something else. And there suddenly, in the thicket, a ram was caught by his thorns. No ram here. Um, Everything in the picture with the strange light um, is definitely coming down to the sense that the divine light is laying on the, uh, the soft, supple, perfected, unmarked, unblemished lamb of sacrifice, Isaac. Uh, everything is drawn to, um, to Isaac in the picture. Even as we look at Abraham, the old man, as his eyes look up to the angel, who comes, the angels looking down at the boy. And so wherever we go, our eyes fall on the sacrificial lamb, um, uh, Isaac. Where touched by an angel, um, uh, the old man uh, suddenly drops his knife. And what a knife it is. Um, a butter knife. <laughs> an ornate knife. This wasn't a knife that you would bring to a sacrifice. It wasn't a knife sufficient to the task. Look, it's bejeweled, it's gold. The scabbard's even more so. It doesn't have a point. Not a good knife to bring to a sacrifice. Because a sacrifice is what? We, we clean it up. An altar is what? We clean it up. It is a place of death. You took a life on an altar. When you sacrifice something, you took its life on the altar. And there will be blood. There is always blood when you talk about an altar and a sacrifice, especially in the Old Testament. And this wasn't the tool for it. Um, and yet, the oppressive hand, this is the one piece that I do find um, most compelling, which doesn't quite fit this narrative of sacrifice glorified. You might call this, I was trying to think of a word to describe this, and this isn't quite right. I'm not going to die on this grenade, but for lack of a better word, I'm going to call this the Trinitarian reading of Genesis 22, where we know the end of the story. We hear that God who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up so that we all should live, of Romans 8.32 that we just heard this morning, in fact. Um, that the ram who was the uh, uh, given instead of Isaac is, in fact, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of So we read all that, and it's correct, 100%. Um, Rembrandt is right there, and he's wanting us to see that, that Isaac is the type of Christ, the, the, the Christ figure here. Um, the one who now is being spared, but who later will give his life as a ransom for many. Um, the, uh, the image of, of, of Isaac looks a lot like the Pieta, the other images of, of Christ coming down from the cross, um, except for the hand. This hand, it gets me. Some of us saw this last year in Munich. Um, I don't know if you went to the, uh, who else was on the Germany trip? Did you see it? Um, uh, it's not quite the same one. That's actually a student one. It's got a ram in that one, but this is one that's different. What's that? Different angel. Different angel. Um, 
but pretty close. And I remember it was the first time I saw it last year, and the hand jumped out, rounded a corner and saw this. I said, oh, my God, who did this? Um, I mean, that hand, it's abnormally large. Um, you know, this is an old man, but he's got a really large, like an iron worker's hand. And I can't breathe. I can't breathe. I mean, it's just covering. And you look at it, and you're just like, you know, I feel the suffocating presence of the command of God. Take your son. Which son? I have two sons. I'm going to have sons that, that will one day exceed the sand on the seashore. Remember, God? You're the God of the promise. Because um, that happened after Sarah died, and he married again, and he had a whole brood. He said, no, take your son, your only son, your begotten son. We hear that word in the creed. Um, begotten, not made. What does that mean? Um, I, again, assuming I'm a dressmaker, I make a dress. I don't beget a dress. You know, in the life of Gil Cracky is written, it's going to be saying, Gil and May May begat Caroline and Margaret. You know, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. You know, you beget something that's from within you. And so Christ is begotten, not made. Being of one substance with the Father, consubstantial. He's actually of the Father, is Christ. He wasn't sort of, he wasn't you or me that just sort of said, like, hey, he's a good guy. I'll sort of draft him in. We're made children of God, adopted by His grace, having been justified by grace through faith, um, through the brotherhood of Christ who is our intermediary and our advocate. We are made children of God. Jesus Christ alone is begotten, not made as the Son of God. So all that said, take your son, your only son, your only begotten son. Which one? I have two. Ishmael. You just send him out. He's still alive. He's 14. He's older. You know, Take him. No, I don't want him. I want the son of the promise, the one that I said I'm going to multiply the world through. My promise, take that son, your only son, your begotten son, and take him up there to die. Um, that will be your worship. And God tested Abraham. What in the world does that mean? Yeah. Yes? <clears throat> if you look at that hand and you remember Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's that same strong, but in that art, it's the hand of welcome and yep, mercy. Yep. And it's both. Great pull. So yep. In Rembrandt's. Yep. That's good, Fran. Don't think about that. <laughs> if y'all know this one by Rembrandt, The Return of the Prodigal, um, the, I'll have to do this one next time. Um, the, the father has two hands, and they're different. One's more of a female hand and one's a man's hand. And he is he's a master with hands, obviously. Because one, you can just see it, it's a little bit further down the backside of the prodigal, and it's strong and it's masculine, it looks like this. It's the, the hand of the father that says, I've got you. You are not leaving. Yep. But then the other one, it's not quite as far down, it's the hand of a mother. It's the hand of a nurture. It's like, I've missed you. I've missed you. You're my heart, and my heart has come home. You know, I have been wholeheartedly absent until this very moment. And that's the other hand. It's a great pickup. This is that hand of, I've got you. There is no ambiguity here. Um, so this is Rembrandt. Lots to say, um, but let's keep going. Your son, your only son, that's the one I want. Um, that was sacrifice kind of glorified, you know, because... One more thing. Um, no struggle in Isaac. He's just there. The Pieta, again, which is Christ who's dead, so he's really, really, really still. The stillness 
is what jumps off the page. Even though I can't, not this paradox, I can't get out because having that hand over your face, how do you not struggle um, uh, for air? But look, these muscles are, are, are relaxed. Um, everything's fine. Compared to Caravaggio's uh, part, there's no real center here. As the other one, everything goes to uh, Isaac as the, 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 the lamb of sacrifice. Here, it doesn't have a focal center. You, sometimes you're drawn to the angel who's pointing to the lamb. Sometimes you're drawn to, to, uh, uh, to Abraham whose eyes are covered. So you can't really read him. He's very obscure, a lot of ambiguity. Uh, sometimes you're looking at the touch of the angel who's not floating. This is very earthy, not celestial. He's just kind of walking in. He doesn't fly down. Touched by an angel, hadn't let go of the knife. And this is a knife. This is a knife that has come to do the deed. And then you look at the ram that's right there. But then, of course, once you finally make your way down, almost hidden, the light is there, but it's an unusual light. You look at, um, at Isaac, and this is the only one uh, the only thing in the whole scene which is trying to engage us, the viewer, uh, is his eyes. They're fixed on you. And they're eyes that are bloodshot and, and strained, uh, panicked. Uh, the weight of the older man is holding him down. The knife is right there. Look at the, the hand that's gripping the knife. Um, this is the horror of sacrifice. But then there's the ram. This is probably how I want to end this. I didn't think I was going to go there, but... Here's the ram. Um, uh, what Trinitarian versus non-Trinitarian. Again, I don't like that language. I have to think about this. Um, one of the biggest obstacles to reading the Bible is reading the Bible. Um, and so we read this and we think, God, got it. Yep, God sent his only son, um, his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have ever life. Yep, got it, no problem. And so, but we, we miss this. We come back in to Genesis 22, and all we know is God. Let's call it this, God that's not yet enfleshed. God that yet has not yet limited himself by taking the form of a, of a servant, or God that hasn't limited himself by being born of a woman, born under the law, as Paul would say in Galatians 4, that God hasn't, who hasn't yet sort of poured himself as the word, the abstract, the infinite word into an enfleshed, limited space in time, 2,000 years ago, A.D. You know, 4 or whatever it was. God that's unbound, that's really totally and completely free, that God is a problem to us. Um, and so I have you know, a pause here. And Mark Genelette has a good word on this. And so if you're in Mark's classes too, you hear this a lot. Um, you know, we need to be careful the way we use God a lot. I want to know God, or you know, when I'm, you know, fishing, I love God because He talks to me, or you know, I feel close to God, or you know, God isn't going to let me down, all that. And we just talk about God language. That's good. It's right. It's a, that's fantastic. But God without Christ, God outside of Christ, you know, I mean, that's that's tough. God outside of Christ who is not clothed in flesh, is a difficult God. Um, God outside of Christ, in other words, is God. He's actually free. He can do what he wants to do um, uh, by definition. But God, So he's not approachable. He's certainly not manageable. Um, he, uh, he's actually God. 
but now God in Christ, who was the one over there in the ram, the one who later would be, in fact, poured into bone and flesh and hair and called himself the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb which says, mark this, mark this, amen, amen, he says, which gets our attention on the front end. Verily, verily, I say unto you, no one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. And I think that's what Caravaggio gets here. Look at the strange positioning of the ram. I mean, let's see if it's a different angle when we look at this. It's as if you're almost wondering, okay, what's what's is Abraham, because he's not, he's not listening to the angel yet. There's a part of you, maybe, that's even like, is he going to listen to the angel? Does the angel have enough power to pull off, um, to pull him off? But when the hand of Abraham comes out, Isaac, the father of Jacob, by the way, who we're going to look at in two weeks, he's right there, right there, seconds away from death. It's as if when Abraham lets up, pulls his weight off of the neck of his son and he finally springs up that the lamb is ready just to lay his head down. No one takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. And then if, if Abraham is not there to take the lamb's life, it's as if, it's as if the lamb would take the knife and plunge it into himself. Um, for the sins of you, of me, so that we would have this unknowable, unapproachable, this God being God, um, we could have peace. We could have peace. So let me end with this. It comes to my mind. Um, this is how Paul ended, in fact, uh, his ways through... Let me not talk. Let me turn. Um You know, we heard the end of Romans 8, which for those of us who love that chapter, deservedly so, uh, feels like the Himalayan. It's like, and now I am convinced that nothing and no thing should be able to separate you from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. We would expect him to then sing and soar in some sort of doxology of praise and thanksgiving. Praise God from... You, know, you think, okay, we've, we've reached the highest height. And Paul goes from that... And he goes right down to the place that's like, I am grieved in my heart that my people um, are outside of the promise of God. Um, and he goes through the whole question in Romans 9, 10, and 11 until he finally comes to this place before we are living sacrifices. Remember, altars and sacrifices mean death, but now Paul's turning it around to being living. Here's his doxology. Uh, oh, in Romans 11, Verses 33, verse 33 forward. Oh, the the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. There's no breath there. To him be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You're not a dead sacrifice anymore. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. You will not go under the knife ever again. This is my promise. And God is hanging himself 
on the promise. Um, and yet, God will lead us to our Mount Moriah, to that place where death and life meet, where a part of us will die, so another part will yet live. And I'm going to hang that. You know, I'll try to pick that up in two weeks when I go. Um, tons here. This is a great chapter. I'm sorry I didn't quite do it what I wanted to, but just a way to get to, and you know, it's all to be continued, so that's good. Let's pray. Lord, there's parts where I didn't... Um, well, there's just so much to say, Lord. And you are a God who speaks. Um, continue to speak in a way that you would um, let your word uh, be heard. Um, be the God who provides so that we may see. Um, uh, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. See you on two weeks. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.